I'd like for you, if on the inside of your aisle, there are some connection pads there. Uh, if you could take a few moments, moments to fill that out, that would be great. Uh, we also have two ways that you can submit prayer requests to the church uh, in the connection pads, and we also have a prayer jar located out in the foyer if there's anything you'd like for the church to pray for you for. And if you have your Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 4. We will be looking at verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 25. Jesus Christ is uh, the way. He's not an alternative way. He's not an optional way. He's not a different way. He's God's way. The priestly way, the prophetic way, the kingly way. He's the redemptive way, the reconciliation way, the salvation way, the restoration way, and the justice way. And Christ didn't grow and mature and develop into the way. He was born this way. He was born to be this. But before he could start his ministry, certain preparations had to be made for him. And we've seen the Lord God makes these preparations the, the last three weeks. And now the preparations are complete. It's time for Jesus to begin his ministry. It's time for his ministry to go public, to go live, to be on the front lines. And this morning I want to talk about Jesus' public ministry and what his ministry can teach us. So if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. This passage gives us a snapshot of Jesus' ministry, a detailed summary of his ministry on earth. Here's the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout Syria and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics. He healed them all and great crowds followed him from Galilee for the capitalists from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This is God's holy word. Please pray with and for me.
Spirit, you are the one who leads God's people into all truth. That is your job. That is your role in the life of every believer. You do it. It's a work that you do in us. Preacher can't change hearts. Preacher can't change his own heart. So Holy Spirit, I, I call upon you to come and minister to God's people today that you will let each of us receive from this service, from this word, what we need today. You know us. You know what we're dealing with. You know what we're hiding. You know how we're pretending. And so I pray that through your power, that through your work, you will graciously undo us. Graciously undo us. Graciously peel us back like a banana. So that the great physician can do work on us. A healing work. A redemptive work. A restoration work. A forgiving work. A hopeful work. And he would, you would do this for our good and for Christ's glory. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Every person in, in, in the world have and use what I call signals, either intentionally or unintentionally. Couples have signals. Families have signals. And, and, and signals exist even amongst friends. They exist in the workplace and churches and clubs and different tribes. And the definition of a signal is a gesture, sound, or action used to convey some information or instructions, usually prearranged by parties involved. So each of you have developed signals in your social network, in your relationships, in your family. It can be a cough. It can be folding your arms. It can be a, a word, a movement of your hands. We have signals for when it's time to leave a place. You have when you feel uncomfortable, when it's time for people to leave your house and go home, when you need help, when you sense danger. We all have these signals. We give them and we receive them. The same is true in, in the passage before us today. Jesus received a signal. It's a signal that the time has come for him to begin his ministry. It's time for his ministry to be on the front lines. And so what is the signal? It's not a sound of a horn. It's not a voice from heaven. It's not, a, it's not the nod. It's not a tap on the shoulder. The signal is the arrest of a man called to prepare the way for him. That's John the Baptist. You see, Jesus doesn't go public with his ministry until after John is arrested. Now, that's our signal, I know. It doesn't make sense, I know, but it's true. The arrest ends John's public ministry. When he goes to jail, he is no longer on the ministry scene again. He doesn't even leave jail alive. He dies there. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness will no longer cry. Why? Because John has fulfilled his ministry. He has fulfilled the purpose for which God had put him on the earth to fulfill. He prepared the way for the Christ. And so now John and his ministry is going to decrease while Jesus and his ministry increases. Verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Not out of fear, not to go into hiding, not to flee danger, not to run away from responsibility. He goes there because he has received the signal. It is time. 
The time has come, Jesus. The time is now, Jesus. It's time to begin your earthly ministry. And he does. And he begins it in a certain way. And, and, and we shouldn't be strangers to that because we have ways about us, too. We have a certain way in which we do things as well. Certain way in which you carry your business. Certain way in which you do life. A certain way you start a project. A certain way you do your job. A certain way you do food prep. A certain way you pick out your clothes every day. And Jesus is no different here. He had a certain way in which he started his ministry. First, he goes back home, goes back to Galilee, goes back to Nazareth for a minute, and then he decides to relocate. He moves away from his hometown, leaves his family, leaves the area that he grew up in, and he relocates to a town called Capernaum. And that town is located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And here's a principle for each of us. Sometimes God's call upon us causes us to relocate, to move, to relocate to a new city, to a new state, new church, new job. For Jesus is Capernaum. It becomes his hometown, and that becomes his home base for his for the rest of his ministry is out of that town. And his relocation actually fulfills a prophecy in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 42, 7. Look at what Matthew says in verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, a people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, and on them, a light has gone. That's Jesus. My siblings and I, we didn't grow up in the church. We didn't start attending church till after my mom came to Saving Faith. I think I was in sixth grade when I started going to church. And some of you probably can relate to what happened to me and my sisters after my mom joined the church. We got put in the children's choir. <laughs> yep, that seems to be the, the process. Join the church, get put in the children's choir. And it was hard. I was the only boy in the choir. I couldn't sing. But when mama said jump, you jump. So I had to do it. I had no choice. I had no options. And the first gospel song I ever learned how to sing was this little light of mine. This little light of mine. And some of you may have grew up singing that song. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm going to let it shine. All up in my house, I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine. Out in the dark, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, let it shine, let it shine. Let it shine. And that is exactly what Jesus does for three years on earth. He shines the light. Jesus and his ministry is the great light in verses 15 and 16. He fulfills the prophecy of, of Isaiah. First John, John 1, 4 and 5 says, in Jesus is life. And that life is the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And what is this darkness? The darkness is a reference to people who are still lost in a state of sin and misery. It's people who don't know him in saving faith. It's people who are still separated from the Father. But the good news to them is that Jesus is coming. That's an amen statement. Jesus is coming. The great light is going to shine upon them. And when that light shines, it's going to do two things. It's going to reveal something. And it's going to redeem something. 
another amen statement. Thank you. It reveals, it redeems. You see, the light reveals darkness, and that light redeems from the darkness. That's what Jesus' earthly ministry is going to be about. Verse 17 says, from this time on, he preached saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These words should sound familiar because that's the same message that John the Baptist preaches, preached. And so Jesus' message is connected to John's. He just takes it a step further. He's going to reveal the darkness of people's sin. And he's going to redeem them from that darkness through his death and resurrection. His ministry is going to reveal people's need for a savior. For a savior. It's going to reveal the darkness that holds them into captivity. It's going to reveal sin. The personal sin and the sin placed on them by other people. It's going to reveal the unrighteous sin and the self-righteous sin, the sin of immorality and the sin of morality, the sin of being a good person and the sin of being a bad person. He's going to reveal it all. He's going to reveal their need for reconciliation with the Father. And he's also going to reveal the fact that people actually Love the darkness. John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's what he reveals. And and, and, And the reason he reveals this darkness, there's a reason for it. He reveals it in order that people can have a conviction. Okay? That's why he reveals the darkness. So you can have a conviction, a sorrowful conviction that leads to repentance. That's what he does. And what is repentance? It's owning your sin, taking responsibility for it. Say, yes, I did that. And then it's acknowledging that sin to God, taking it to him, asking him for forgiveness, then turning from that sin unto him. That is repentance, not beating yourself up. And if if you already have faith in him, you should practice repentance daily. It is a means of grace to the saints. Do you practice it? Now, if you don't know him in saving faith, you can know him. All you got to do is confess that you are a sinner separated from God. Then repent of that sin. Then surrender to Jesus in saving faith. And once you do that, the light that has revealed your darkness will redeem you from that darkness. And bring you into his wonderful light. Are you tired of the darkness? Then come to the light. I ain't talking about Star Wars and and Jedi. I'm talking about Jesus. Colossians 1.13 says, God the Father has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sin. Amen. Jesus' death and resurrection makes this possible. And his hands are reaching out to you to show you the way. All you got to do is come. All you got to do is come. Take his hand. Confess him. Repent to him. Receive him. Rest on him. Depend on him. Trust him. Surrender to him. Jesus says in Mark 2.17, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, 
but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. If you think you're all right, then Jesus ain't come to call. He ain't come for you. It's for those who are sick. It's for those who don't have it all together. It's for those who are broken, those who are needy, those who know they need for a savior. You're just the kind of person Jesus wants. He's like, Uncle Sam, I want you. I want you. His ministry and message is for sinners. It reveals sin in order to redeem people from that sin. He's come to call sinners to repentance. Will you answer the call? Have you answered the call? And when you do answer his call and come to him in saving faith, everything about you changes, or it should change. Your heart changes. Your position before God changes. Your status changes. Your identity will change. Your citizenship changes. Your stated and functional priorities, convictions, allegiances, and loyalties should change as well. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, and behold, the new has come. Do you believe it? The new you in Christ is often described in certain terms like Christian, believer, child of God, son and daughter of God, saint and disciple. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? The definition of a disciple is a person who follows someone else, a person who follows the teachings and ways of another person. A disciple of Christ is a person who follows him, a person who lives for him, a person who seeks his ways, a person who believes and applies his word, a person who rests in his grace, a person who takes up her cross daily. It's a person, a disciple of Christ, is a person who is committed to discipleship. Discipleship. And that's another amen statement. Are you committed to discipleship? Jesus is committed to discipleship through his earthly ministry. And he's even committed to it now as he sits in the right hand of God the Father. You see, his ministry calls people to discipleship. Don't gloss over this. This is very important. Very important. He calls people to discipleship. Jesus doesn't enter full-time ministry as a long ranger. He doesn't go into ministry as a one-man show. He brings others along with him. He invests in them. He does life-on-life discipleship with them. Why? It's because his public ministry is on the clock. There's an end to his ministry. It only lasts three years. That's 36 months. That's not very long. Now, what would be the consequence if he begins and ends his ministry without raising up disciples? Because, listen, he could easily do what he came to do alone. He came into the world to save sinners by sacrificing himself on the cross. Disciples aren't needed for that. Disciples aren't needed for his work of redemption. Disciples aren't needed for him to fulfill the requirements of the law. Disciples aren't needed for him to die on the cross. They definitely not needed for his resurrection. They're not even needed for when he ascends to heaven. Then why? But, but they are needed. Because if he doesn't invest in discipleship, then his ministry, his message, his death, and his resurrection dies when he ascends. 
You see, he begins his ministry knowing that his ministry will outlive him. It will outlive him. And so he raises up disciples who would take that ministry forward long after he's gone. Think about that. Take that to heart and then apply it. Whatever God has called you to will outlive you. Will outlive you. So invest in others who would take it forward when you're gone. That's what Jesus does. He intentionally invests in certain men and make them his disciples. He calls them to discipleship. And guess what? The call interrupts their life. It interrupts their schedule. It interrupts their agenda. It even interrupts their job. Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea. For they were fishermen. Immediately, he said to them, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his, and, and his John, his brother, in the boat with their father, mending their nets. He called them immediately. They left their boat and their father and followed him. Discipleship isn't always convenient. It calls us out. And these four men, they already knew Jesus. He's not calling strangers. And some believe they were already following him. If so, then then the call in this verse is a call for them to join him in full-time public ministry. As his disciples. Come follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. It's not a call to follow Jesus like the crowd. Because he had a whole crowd of people following him. It's not a call to follow him with lip service. It's not a call to follow him with half-heartedness. It's a call to life on life discipleship. That's what he's called them to. For these disciples will be the ones who carry the ministry forward once he's gone. And notice the pronouns he's used. He uses the four men have the responsibility to come and follow. Jesus' responsibility is to make them disciples of men, make them fishers of men. They're not going to make themselves fishers of men. This is a work that Jesus does in them as they come and follow him. It's Jesus' work. See, discipleship is transformative. It changes you. It's a process. It's a marathon, too. Is you becoming more like Jesus in every area of your life. That's what discipleship is. And then notice what he says to these men. I'm going to make you fishers of men. What is he talking about? They know what he's talking about. Because, man, they're fishermen by trade. It gives them a, a, a picture that connects with them. See, these fishermen, they catch fish with a net. And so when they, what they do, they just throw the net into the ocean. And now, do you think they know how many fish they're going to catch when they cast the net? Do you think they know what size the fishes would be when they cast the net? Do you think they know what kind of fish they would catch when they cast the net? No, no, no. See, Jesus is going to make them into men who cast the gospel net wide into the world. He's going to make them into men who can fish different types of people from every nation, from every tongue, and every tribe. He's going to teach them how to reach all kinds of people with his message and his ministry, with the gospel. 
That's what he's going to teach them. So from verse 19, we know we can see that a disciple of Christ follows Christ. A disciple of Christ comes to Christ and shares Christ. Now, what does this mean for us in the village church? None of us are fishermen, right? What kind of disciples are we hoping the Spirit would make here at the village church? At the village church, a disciple is someone who knows Jesus, enjoys Jesus, glorifies Jesus. That's what we're trying to do here at the village church. That's the kind of disciple we're praying that, that I will be and you will be. Knowing Jesus is following him and becoming more like him. Our Sunday equipping classes are designed for that. Our Sunday worship helps with that. Our men and women short study groups help with that. And your own devotional life with Jesus helps with that. And so if you haven't made a commitment to any of those things, I encourage you to do so. As one wise person told me, if you're going to be here, be here. Be present, participate. Next, enjoying Jesus is worshiping him, communing with him, and fellowshipping with his people. You see, we can't say we enjoy Jesus and don't enjoy his people. They don't go hand in hand. Because if you don't enjoy other Christians, and you really don't enjoy Jesus. You're just faking it. You can't love him and not love the people he died for. They go hand in hand. It doesn't work that way. Our four village groups are stepping stones to help you get connected with other brothers and sisters in our church. They give you the opportunity to take the initiative to get to know someone. And this is taking place in all of our groups. And so if you're longing for connection and fellowship and relationships, then join a village group. Once you do, take the initiative to get to know someone. And at the end of the day, please know this. Each of us are as connected and relational with one another as we want to be. Know that. It ain't the church's fault. You are as connected and relational with people in the church as you want to be. Because one thing is true about people, regardless of race, regardless of economic status, we make time for what we enjoy, and we make time for who we enjoy. I don't care how much money you make or how many degrees you have. That is the gospel truth. We do. Our Sunday worship service also helps us enjoy Jesus in corporate worship with the saints. And our worship service, please hear this, our worship service requires each of us to give up something in order to love brothers and sisters who are different than us. See, our worship service isn't going to be like the church you used to attend. All right, it's not going to be like the church you grew up in. And our worship service would never meet all your personal and cultural preferences for worship. i say that again. Our worship service will never meet all your personal and cultural worship preferences. I'll say it again. Our worship service is never going to meet all your personal and cultural worship preferences. Okay? That's an unrealistic expectation for a church that's striving to be cross-cultural, multi-ethnic, and multi-generational. We're creating our own culture. Now, our service will be Christ-centered and Christ-honoring. We will have confessions of faith. We will have testimonies. We're not going to have a whole bunch of um, this liturgy stuff. That's who we are. 
We will have a blended service. We'll have black gospel songs, hymns, CCM songs. Some songs will be repetitive. Okay? Some songs will be repetitive. And some songs will be very long because they got a lot, a lot of verses. When it comes to the music, we are singing for people who aren't here yet. It's an amen statement. Amen. We are singing for people who aren't here yet. And the way we choose to engage our worship service is an opportunity for you to love one another. Let's love one another. Amen. Glorifying Christ. That's loving him and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's walking alongside of one another in a spirit of mutual brokenness. Who has issues? Who has issues? And if you forget that, that's the issue. That's one of the things at the village church. That's the issue. We all have our junk. Glorifying him is you using your gifts and talents to build up the church and to edify the church. It's, it's living a lifestyle that honors Jesus in your evangelism and your service and your stewardship and your mercy deeds and your, and your relationships and your jobs. And we have ministry teams that are designed for that. A mercy and care team, a community relations team, a soundboard team, a Christian ed team, youth ministry team, children team, music team, nursery. Many of you are wearing different hats in this church. Thank you, my love. Different hats. And I appreciate you for the way you serve our church. Thank you for what you do to love the saints here at the Village Church. Now, if you're burning out, you need to take a break. As my wife tells me, you don't have to be a martyr. Right? If you feel like a martyr, that's your choice. You can take a break. Go rest. You have the freedom to go rest. You have the freedom to say, for this season of my life, I don't need to be doing much right now. You have the freedom to do that. If you need it, rest. Rest. God still loves you. I still love you. Rest. Don't burn yourself out. And if you still haven't found your place, I encourage you to intentionally pray about where you can serve. No one can do everything, but everyone needs to be doing something. Each of us. Everyone gives up something to be part of the village church. That's something I learned from Randy Neighbors at New City Fellowship. Everyone gives up something. Everybody, we are not going to be the Golden Corral of churches. Okay? We ain't ever going to have a buffet line that you can just go pick and choose from. We ain't going to be the Golden Corral of churches. Now, there are things that we're going to do well, and there are things that we, we, we need to improve on. For example, we don't have any minority elders or deacons. We know that's a weakness. Will you help us and pray about that, that God will raise up some minority elders and deacons? That's how you can help us. Pray that God would do that. Again, if you're going to be here, be here. Be present. Be part of the process. Participate. Be a disciple of the village church who knows and enjoys and glorifies Jesus. Be a disciple of the village church who Jesus can use to help build a family that's unified, that, can, that keeps short accounts with one another, that can pursue relationships, that can have difficult conversations about sensitive topics and not break fellowship. Be that kind of disciple. Be a disciple of the church who can help us move closer and closer to Revelation 7-9.
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That's the type of church and community we're trying to build. Be part of that. If you're going to be here, be here. Help us achieve that. Because we can be salt and light to the city of what true racial reconciliation looks like. Will you be part of that? And you have to give up something to be part of it. But it's a call to be part of it. Will you be part of it? Will you join us to achieve that? Will you? We're either going to be disciples of Christ who tolerate one another or disciples of Christ who actually love one another. What type of disciple are you going to be here? We're either going to tolerate one another or we're going to love one another. Can't do both. Who are you going to be? Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, all people would know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Not if you sing certain songs. Not if you sing, do certain confessions. Not if you do this. If you love one another, people would know you are my disciples. The way that we love one another in our church, we're either going to be a good witness for Christ or a bad witness for Christ. Love one another. Let's be broken people coming together to embrace and extend Jesus' love. Let's do it together. Together. Are you familiar with the phrase one trick pony? Yeah. It refers to a person who just has this one joke. One talent, one hobby, one skill. Not very good at anything else. You just have that one thing. And you may know a few one-trip ponies, or the pony could be you. Who knows? Christians and churches and ministries often treat Jesus like a one-trip pony. We treat him like he only speaks into one issue. He only speaks into one cause. We treat him like we treat his ministry as if it just has one focus. And we hear this all the time on, on, from Christians in our country when, when, when it deals with issues in America like race, justice, and worship, and school shootings, and, and politics. We hear it all the time. Please know Jesus isn't a one-trick pony. His message isn't a one-trick pony. His ministry isn't a one-trick pony. Don't bring Jesus so far down to your level. Okay? He's like us in our humanity without the sin, but he's also the Son of God. He's also God in the flesh. So don't reduce Jesus too far down to your level. Okay? He's your friend, but he's also your God. He's still your master. Don't get it twisted. Okay? Don't let your, don't lose reverence for him just because you think he's so far like you. His humanity should never let you lose reverence for him. Okay? It shouldn't. He is your God. He is your Lord. So we still have reverence for him. These these verses today are summarizing for us Jesus' ministry. That's what they're doing. That's what Matthew is doing for us, summarizing it. He's summarizing the ministry. In the first verses, we see that his ministry begins with a signal. His ministry fulfills a prophecy. And his ministry preaches the gospel. In verses 18 to 22, we show you shows us that his ministry is a call to discipleship. And in verses 23 through 25, it shows us that he has a ministry of the word and he has a ministry of deeds. They go hand in hand. 
Verse 23. He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You see, Jesus gives people gospel truth and he also gives them gospel deeds. And see, in his ministry, there's no contradiction of the two. We do that. That's what we do in our ministries, not for Jesus. We make an issue out of something that should never have been an issue. Jesus cares about a person's eternal condition, and he cares about the person's present condition. Physical, emotional, mental, and social. He cares about both. But do you believe it? He cares that people are lost. He cares that people have bad theology. He cares that people are worshiping false gods. He also cares about injustice, homelessness, poverty, unemployment, school shootings, broken families, police brutality, systemic injustice, racism, miscarriages, abortions, broken criminal justice system. He cares about it all. And there's no contradiction in his ministry when it comes to that. Ministry of the word, ministry of deeds go hand in hand. He went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, and doing what? Healing every disease and affliction among the people. Both and. He taught, he preached, and he healed those oppressed by demons, those who were suffering from seizures and paralytics. He did it all without precondition, without the bait and switch. You know what the bait and switch is, right? You trick people to come to church. Then you trick them with the gospel. Jesus doesn't do the bait and switch. He heals them without precondition. Even if they didn't come to faith, he still ministered to them. You see, Jesus speaks into the spiritual conditions of our land, and he speaks into the social conditions of our land. He cares about both. And every church, including our church, should have a ministry of the word, and a ministry of deeds as part of their church, as part of what they do. A church should care about the people's spiritual condition. You should care that people are lost. We should care. If people don't know Jesus, if your family don't know Jesus, if you have neighbors that don't know Jesus, that should break your heart. And you should also care if someone doesn't have food to eat either. When I was in Greenville, working at my church there, one of the members there would go do prison ministry. And when he, he, he told me that he, he thought it was super spiritual to say this. He said, when I go to the, to the, to the prison, you know, these guys be you know, asking if, if I can help them with this or if I had any little bit of cash to put on their account. He says, I just come to give you the gospel. I ain't come to help with all the other stuff. What's wrong with that statement? No ministry of deeds. I'm giving you truth, but I don't care about the other stuff in your life. That is not love. That is not the gospel. The gospel should make you care that people are suffering. The gospel should make you care that there are families who, who lost kids this year through school shootings that they're ever going to see again. The gospel should make you weep that there are uh, uh, Christians around the world who are suffering. Because of persecution. The gospel should make you weep for that. Even in your neighborhoods and our schools, people suffer. 
And they need to know that Jesus just don't care about their eternal salvation. He also cares about what they're currently dealing with, too. And if we can't take that message to them, who can take it? Who can take it? If we don't take it. This is a privilege to be able to take that message to them. Where are we as a church? Where are we as individual believers? God is at work. There's still more work to do when it comes to that. Dr. Martin Luther King once said, the Christian gospel is a two-way road. On one hand, it seeks to change the souls of men, thereby uniting them to God. And on the other hand, it seeks to change their environmental conditions of men so that soul have a chance after it is changed. What is he saying there? He is saying, once people are saved, also speak to the other things going on in their life, in their environment, so that once they're saved, they have a chance to live. And that's discipleship. If a person comes to faith, here and leaves here and still struggling with other things in, the, in, in their life and we don't walk with them then we're not loving them Jesus hasn't called us to make believers he's called us to make disciples not to get people saved but to make disciples so beloved I know this is a hard sermon so you're probably going to talk about me on the way home but I still love you Please know it's all in love. I love you. Sometimes love means saying hard things. It's uncomfortable. So, But it's all in love. Again, don't get mad with the messenger. Get mad with God because he gave me the word. So I want to encourage you as you go out this week, celebrate tomorrow. Please know that the spirit of God would do this in you. Don't forget what verse 19 says. I will make you fishers of men. So you don't go out here and do all this big checklist. Go out and repent and ask the Holy Spirit to work in you. Ask him to change you. That's what you have to do. So don't leave here saying, Pastor Adler, give me all this stuff to do. The only thing I'm asking you to do is repent and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to change you. Give you a heart. Give you the heart that you need. So I don't talk about that enough. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we don't live this life as orphans. And you haven't called us to do anything that you already haven't done for us. And so, Lord, when it comes to walking with others, when it comes to this church, when it comes to ministry of the word and ministry of deeds, we need your spirit to guide our small congregation. You know, we have things that we're good at. And we have our blind spots and weaknesses, too. And the elders and deacons, we know it. We're praying about these things. And so, Lord, we are at your mercy. We fall down, Lord, as we saw today before your throne, asking you for help. And so help us. Help our families. Help help our singles. Help our kids. Help our, our kids who are getting ready to go off to college. Help those who need jobs. You know what we need, Father. You know what we need. So I pray that you would do it for your glory and for our good. And I pray for this in, in Christ's name. Amen. Will you please stand as we close our service?